This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. People who make horror movies know that if you want to scare someone, use scary music. And when we want to explore the design of music, we call Rishikesh Herway from the podcast Song Exploder. So here are two fundamental ways to make something sound scary, according to evolutionary biologist Dan Blumstein. The first way is to use lots of screechy, irregular tones. Well, animals, when they're scared, are blowing a lot of air across their vocal cords or across their syrinx if they're a bird. And the sounds of screams are something that is arousing and makes people feel negative. It's biological. Your lizard brain hears Bernard Herrmann's knife-stabbing music in Psycho and says, something <laughs> terrible is happening right now. The second way sounds can make you feel uneasy is to go the other way. Make really low, grumbling sounds with lots of bass. Another biological cue that might lead to fear and anxiety is hearing low frequencies. The, lo the lowest frequency a species can produce is a function of its body size. So low frequency probably should scare you. It, it might mean that something big is around. Mix those both together and you're on your way to creating classic scary music for scary movies. But horror movies aren't just meant to be horrifying. They're also meant to be exciting and fun. So it's sometimes nice to have a driving beat. The music from the movie Halloween by composer John Carpenter will always creep me out and also get me kind of excited. In terms of horror movies, I certainly know that I respond to sound in horror movies in ways that are complex. You know, John Carpenter's soundtracks are, you know, good example. You know, that's a very specific thing. It evokes dread. David Slade is very good at evoking dread himself. My name's David Slade. I directed the pilot for the first episode of Hannibal, and I'm an executive producer on the show, and I pretty much sound mix every episode. I've been binging on the TV show Hannibal for the past couple weeks, and it really gets under your skin. It's the story of a serial killer named Hannibal Lecter, who you may know from Silence of the Lambs and Manhunter. This is kind of a prequel to those stories. Hannibal is a nasty character who commits grisly and unspeakable crimes. The other main character is Will Graham, an FBI profiler who has a knack for getting inside the heads of serial killers to try to catch them. Trust me, there is nothing fun going on inside Will Graham's head. And inside Will Graham's head is exactly where the sound design of Hannibal is trying to place the viewer. Will Graham visualizes things, and he recognizes patterns. This is what he does. He reconstructs things in his head. It's a mental activity. Synapses firing. These are things that we want to make an audio analog of. So there's a lot of like sounds. This is from the first episode of Hannibal. All the classic horror movie music we mentioned before exists outside the world of the story. In other words, it's not being heard by the characters being depicted, it's just being heard by the audience. But composer Brian Reitzel's score for Hannibal feels different. You get a sense that it's even being heard by Will Graham, inside his own imagination. Our whole goal with horror really is to transport people into this other reality, and it's a scary reality, it's a tense reality, um, but it's a beautiful place too. Um, but to do that, I find the most effective way to scare people is to throw sounds at them that are unfamiliar to them. 
So Brian constructs new sounds that the audience can't place to create unease. That's not a guitar. What is that? Ah! A lot of what we do is create all of the sound. So we turn all the sound effects off, and the ones that we think are important, we try to make something that resembles that sound or feels like that sound. I don't differentiate really between ambient sounds, like a motor and a bass. So in this case, he's on a motorcycle. I thought it'd be really interesting to make the feeling of what it would be like being on that motorcycle. Rush of adrenaline and the wind and the sound of the engine, which is underneath you. I mean, all this is very powerful stuff. So the first idea I had was to do it with an upright bass. just glistening up and down the neck, kind of revving. The cue starts with, with the motorcycle starting up. So we do lots of little things in there to mimic or hint at those sounds. On screen, we're seeing the key turn castanets. Then we see the flames from the engine the sound of heat is me bowing a wood block. You put some reverb on it and it sounds like smoke. The more I work with the different instruments, the more I understand what you can get out of them. Almost all the sounds in Hannibal start out as an acoustic element from Brian Reitzel's workshop. Then the effort is made to strip it of identifying characteristics that would ground the sound in the real world. I'm constantly trying to de-guitar a guitar or de-drum a drum. That's Brian placing a wooden chopstick on a snare drum and pulling a violin bow across the chopstick. You could never tell by listening that a chopstick, bow, or a drum made this sound. Brian doesn't just take regular instruments and make them weird. He also takes weird instruments and makes them weirder. I went around Brian's studio as he pulled out examples of the instruments he uses. For example, the sound of synapses firing inside Will Graham's head started out as a Newton's cradle. If you don't know a Newton's cradle by name, you definitely know the sound. Right, everybody knows this. It sits on your desk. You know, it's that pendulum toy with the stainless steel balls all hanging from strings. But what I did is I used it as a, I used it to create these rhythms, um, kind of synapse in your brain stuff, and, <laughs> and did some different treatments of those and used those as a percussion instrument. You can see I actually broke it in the process. There were originally five balls that were a perfect unison. Even the most innocuous instruments turn sinister in the hands of Brian Reitzel. And these sleigh bells I, I just used in this first episode of Hannibal because I had um, snails, uh, and I had these macro shots of snails. But really, it's these sleigh bells. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I can go on and on. David Slade calls the sound design of Hannibal free associative. They look at the footage and talk about the characters and the feelings they're trying to evoke from each scene and design from there. 
The big bad guy in Hannibal is, of course, Hannibal Lecter, but Will Graham also is wrestling with his own demons. He has dreamlike visions of a demon they call the Wendigo that represents both the evil of Hannibal and the evil growing inside Will Graham. One of the characters that developed over time was the Wendigo character, which is the bassist of horrors. And we wanted a sound that indicated the coming of that character. That sound, I knew it was circular. We didn't know why, but we knew that was right. And I took what David said, literally, and I got a bull roarer. Uh, but basically, it's a piece of wood on a string. It's one of the oldest instruments. But it sounds incredible. You spin it in a circular manner. And in doing so, it slices through the air, creating this sort of sound. Once we put it against the picture, we knew it was the right sound. It's very physical sounding, sort of cutting through the air, spinning around your head, making it surreal yet also very physical. I also did things to that sound. I pitched it down, I pitched it up to make it scarier. Well, mission accomplished, guys. Because I'm creeped the f*** out. Rishikesh Herway is the creator of Song Exploder, which I'm very proud to say is now a member of the Radiotopia Collective. I'm so excited. Song Exploder is one of my favorite podcasts, and the premise is just perfect. Musicians take apart their songs piece by piece to tell the story of how they were made. If you've never heard Song Exploder before, I want to present what I think is my favorite episode so far featuring John Roderick of The Long Winters, but I have a hard time picking a favorite. I really think you should just download them all and pick your own favorite. Now, from Radiotopia, this is Song Exploder. My fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At 9 o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. A short time later, debris was seen falling from the skies above Texas. The Columbia's lost. There are no survivors. That was President George W. Bush addressing the nation on February 1st, 2003. A couple years later, John Roderick, singer and songwriter of The Long Winters, recorded a song about the space shuttle Columbia on that day as it broke apart while re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. It's called The Commander Thinks Aloud. This episode was made from an interview I did with John Roderick in front of a live audience in Seattle about how and why he made this song. I am John Roderick. I had my pilot's license when I was 17. My dad was a small plane pilot. And that was the way my dad, it was one of the ways that we bonded, was in a small plane, you know, trying to make it over a mountain range. So I had a lot of experience in planes. I always love to fly, and when the nose comes off the ground, I always feel a charge. 
I didn't want to be a person that was anxious about flying. Well, at that point in 2005, I guess, we were still pretty close to 9-11, and the space shuttle disaster followed pretty close on the heels of that. But also, there were all those smaller disaster crashes. The Alaska Airlines crash that happened off the coast of California where they lost their vertical stabilizer, the jack screw one. The pilots were aware there was a problem. Everyone was aware there was a problem. It just flew around and then flipped upside down and plummeted into the ocean. And then there was the one off of Long Island where maybe the gas tank exploded. And then there was that Learjet that lost compression and everybody in it gone until it ran out of gas. And all of these disasters stuck with me, particularly the ones where there was a sense that the people on board knew that they were lost, but they were still alive. The unfolding, dawning realization, like, you know, we're not getting out of this. And what's your reaction in that situation? Do you, do you scream? You probably don't. Probably everybody is really calm in that situation. And, and so I pictured the astronauts on re-entry. They knew there was something wrong with their ship. They were worried about it, but everybody had convinced them it was going to be fine. And they're performing their duties. They are having the peak experience of their lives and maybe one of the peak human experiences. Like, we are coming back to Earth, having just, like, looked down at Earth and had that feeling how beautiful that kind of dumb little stuff is. The beauty of the mundane, right? Like, boys and girls in cars and dogs and birds on lawns. Like, seeing it maybe like no one else would ever see it. Boys and girls in cars. Dogs and birds on lawns. From here I can touch the sun. Did you sit down with the idea that you were going to write a song about the space shuttle disaster? Yeah, but I didn't know how it was going to work. Every once in a while you get one as a songwriter where you sit down at your instrument, you have an idea, you have a first line, you sing it and compose the entire song in, in an hour, and then you go, I don't know where that came from. I resisted piano lessons as a kid, but sometime in high school, I started to sit at the piano voluntarily when no one was home and try and figure it out. And I got as far as you could go if you were just practicing for 11 minutes at a time. And I didn't really learn the piano until I was in my 30s. Learn the piano as much as I know it now. In the early 90s, in Seattle especially, there was a mentality that you didn't want to overlearn your instrument. <laughs> Right, because that was going to affect the authenticity of your feelings. And I embraced that hook, line, and sinker. So the producer of this track was Tucker Martin. Tucker had a, just a stand-up parlor piano in his living room. and that, that was recorded in his living room. Now we would probably just record it one uh, measure and loop it. But at the time, I had to sit and play it for five minutes, and then I would get to the end, and he'd be like, hmm... Let's hit it again. (laughs) 
Eric Corson, Long Winter's bass player, and my chief musical partner. He sat down at, at the microchord, which is not an instrument he knew, but he worked with it for a little bit and he figured it out. There are five or six moments in the song that without Eric's part, it would be so much less of a complete work. His part is very cinematic. As the song unfolds, it, it just starts to go sideways. And every successive verse, stuff is starting to break. Most of the Long Winter songs are about relationships and they are intentionally difficult to parse because they're meant to communicate in an emotional language rather than in a literal language. And so as I was writing this song, I, as I made my way through the emotional story I was trying to tell, I did arrive at a place where I was like, I need to give a clue here somewhere. The crew compartment's breaking up. I was embarrassed to say the crew compartment's breaking up because I felt like it was too literal. And so to say the crew compartment's breaking up, the first time I went through it, I was just like, ah, you know, but it needed it. The crew compartment's breaking up. The crew compartment's And the thing was, you sing it once, the second time everybody gets it, the third time they've heard it now, the fourth time they're like, okay, all right. Fifth, sixth time, it starts to get annoying. And then a new kind of gravity enters in seventh time. You start to feel the emotion. The crew compartment's breaking up. The crew compartment's breaking up. And when I perform it live, if I'm not careful, I will start to cry during that part. Those are real violins. And we tried to get a little string quartet to come and we ran several passes at it. We took that and played it double speed. And they did their own version of this kind of swarm of bees. So we didn't have a drummer and it was like, who should we get? Should we call that one guy? He was like, or I could get the best drummer in the country. Any producer would make that choice if he had Matt Chamberlain's number. And Tucker did. And he managed to not just introduce swing into it, but make this piano part, which on its own is very square and and on top of the beat. And he played to it and introduced swing to it. Played a little bit behind and a little bit with this tremendous sort of breath and energy. And watching it all happen was a revelation to me as a musician. I understood how much I had to learn. So what Matt did 
he, he came in, he set up his drums, and he had one microphone that he pulled out of a bag and set up himself. And we all just were watching him. You know, like you would watch a Black Panther that came into your kitchen. It's like, what's it gonna do? And he put the microphone in front of his drums and he was like, okay, you know, record me. And so he plays for about a minute and then he's like, play that back for me. And he listens to the track for a minute. And then he stands up, he walks around and he moves the microphone imperceptibly. <laughs> Sits back down and says, roll it. And he plays all the way through the track. And I was listening to it and going like, you know, I'm the songwriter and kind of the main guy here. And I was like, yeah, that was pretty good. I mean, I've got, I've got some comments. Um, and he, we got to the end and he was like, okay, roll it again. You know, and he didn't wait to hear any comments from the songwriter, which is like, all right. He played through it again. And I was like, mm, that was interesting. You know, kind of variation. And he was like, give it to me again. He did that five times. And then he's like, all right, you know, I'm coming into the control room. And he comes in and he sits down and he's like, okay, pan those five tracks. Hard left, middle left, center, middle right, hard right, in the order that I recorded them. Five mono drum parts. And he had the foresight that there are drum fills that start on one track and continue through all five tracks. So, you know, you hear about guys and you're like, oh, that guy's amazing. But this was something truly amazing. As part of his drum kit, I forgot to mention, he has a piece of rusty sheet metal <laughs> just attached to a clamp. And he starts to go up to this sheet metal like. And all of that sheet metal noise that he was creating the whole end of the tune, where the spaceship is coming apart, he was making that sound on the rusty metal. He had a vision of the song that I didn't even have. You know, the title of the song wasn't clear until right about this point in the recording. And so then, if the commander's, you know, thinking aloud, why is he telling us this story? wanted to bring home This is all I wanted to bring home to you That's his, his last word, I guess. Do you have a sense of who he was addressing when he says that? I don't publicly out myself as a utopian and a people lover <laughs> because it's not my brand. <laughs> But I'm an idealist, and, uh, and I love humanity, and I imagine us as all on a ship together and all with a common cause. And space exploration seems like the ultimate expression of human beings doing their best work. So I imagine he's bringing that back to us, all of us. It's something that if we could only uh, share that, the simple feeling of just like, why the hell do we go up into space? We go up into space to bring back that little tantalizing like vision of the earth being a borderless place full of birds and boys and girls.
And now, here's The Commander Thinks Aloud by The Long Winters in its entirety.
Rishikesh Hurway is the creator of Song Exploder, now from Radiotopia. Find out more at songexploder.net. Invisible is Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from the Fanables who supported our Kickstarter campaign and from Parachute. Parachute is an online luxury betting brand based in Venice Beach and made in Italy. They've created a line of everyday betting essentials from sheets to duvet inserts to enhance your sleep experience. I just got the Venice set in the color Slate and they're great. My sleep is certainly enhanced. Their website is straightforward and easy to use. Simply select the betting items you're seeking, your preferred fabrics and colors, and then receive them at your front door. It is very easy. Go to ParachuteHome.com slash 99 and Parachute will give you $25 off on your first order with the code 99PI. That's ParachuteHome.com slash 99 and enter 99PI for $25 off at checkout to start sleeping better today. Support is also provided by Basecamp. Basecamp is the project management app for people who want total control over their projects. Basecamp helps you wrangle people with different roles, responsibilities, and objectives toward a common goal, finishing a project together. Basecamp runs in the cloud on their secure servers so you don't have to mess with anything technical, from freelancers to small shops to mid-sized companies to enormous multinationals. Basecamp is the go-to project management tool for hundreds of thousands of groups worldwide. Over 15 million people have used Basecamp at work or for their own personal projects. Listeners to 99% Invisible can try Basecamp for two months absolutely free by visiting Basecamp.com slash 99PI. And finally, the Jack Crawford to our Will Graham is Tiny Letter. Email for people with something to say. My boys, Maslow and Carver always have something to say. What do you got to say, boys? Our keyboard has horror movie sounds. Play it, Carver. <laughs> Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter. From the great people behind MailChimp. Thanks to MailChimp, the Knight Foundation, and people just like you, we created the expanding Radiotopia from PRX. If your company would like to advertise with the best independent audio artists doing the best work today, email sponsor at radiotopia.fm. Also, Radiotopia is looking for an executive producer that will work with me and PRX to become a leader in the radio and podcasting revolution. Maybe you already work in radio and want to be on the cutting edge. Or maybe you work in TV, movies, or tech, and you're craving something that means more to you. I encourage you to check out the job description and apply. I want to find someone who will ask the questions of our future and our industry that I haven't even thought to ask. This could be you. This is going to be a killer job. So if you're interested, we'll have a link to the job description and application on the 99PI website and Facebook page. You can find the show and like the show on Facebook. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Spotify too. But if you want to tell a fanable, that's a fan of the show Hannibal, about our show, the best place to send them is 99PI.org. Radio Tokyo.